This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. time traveled we have traveled through time oh no wait wait how far back tell me how far back a single hour oh no that's not enough to help (laughs) (laughs) that's just enough to make it worse (laughs) you uh you get to relive the same hour of sunday morning again what Mm. did you what did you do the second time around i did definitely just keep playing super mario odyssey (laughs) It's the same thing that I did with the hour in the first place. Sure. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. What'd you do with that hour? Slept on the other side of my body, I bet. I was, oh, okay. You were sleeping? Lame. I was asleep. You know, I did not do that Pete and Pete, like, stay up, Sure. Time you don't travel. even notice the time travel happening if you don't stay up. Like, what even is the point? Yeah, I kind of I did that thing where I set the alarms on my phone and just like hoped for the best. <laughs> yeah, because you never know. Like, if if some software update is going to have broken daylight savings time <laughs> until it's it's happened. So, yes. Yeah. I ended up setting it earlier than necessary just in case. Sure. I, sure. You sure, know, sure. Who knows? We're talking about time because this week. Uh, well, because of daylight savings. Well. Which is dumb, but also there was a book. That also, you read. there was a book that I read called "A Wrinkle in Time" by Madeline Langle. So, do you want to before we talk yes. about her and about this book? Do you want to talk about what we're doing with this month? This month of November. I'll do my best. It's stuff we've read month. So each week we're going to be tackling a book that is pretty well known because both of us have read it, which is why it's well known. Or one of us has read it or something. Um, but a, Who can say what came first? Usually, really? if you've been listening to the show for a while or if you joined us recently, you've probably gotten the gist that each week we read a book that we haven't read before and then talk about it with the other person who has not specifically read it for that podcast, with some yeah, exceptions. And, and so that, that is a lot for episodes where like Craig has read the book and maybe I've read the book and that informs the conversation a little bit, but I wasn't the one who read it for the show. This month, we're just... Like there are books that people have requested for months and months and sometimes years where we've just been like, you know, we can't because it technically breaks the rule of the show because both of us read it in high school like 15 years ago. Yep. Um, and so this month we're just going to we're going to we're going to break all the rules. We figured we do it as a theme month so that folks would like forgive us. Just get all this rule breaking <laughs> out of the way up front. People and it, seem very excited for yes. it. I don't think we have to worry about it too much. Well, and it means we get to talk about folks like Madeline Lengel, who is an influential author in the 20th century, and we have basically been avoiding her uh, because we've both read this book. <laughs> so. She keeps walking by us in the halls and we keep just like shielding our faces. I and can't talk walking about fast. Maddie, I can't talk about your book on my podcast. I read you already. Maddie, I'm I read sorry. you. I know I, I know that I liked you, but we can't talk now. I know. I can't be seen with you. Maddie, you gotta got let us go. It's fine. Um, 
So you have read this book. I have. Now, I, I, it's one of those books where I read it a bunch as a, as a kid and as a teenager. Um, sure. Probably at least like five or six times, I got I to gotta believe. But I don't think I've read it since then. Like I, def- I definitely haven't read it since like high school at the latest. And I think at that point, even I had maybe outgrown it or like moved on to, to other stuff. And so it's just it's been a long time. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know when and if I went back and read it after reading it in elementary school i read some of the other books in the series so a wrinkle in time is it was published in 1962 it is the first of five books in lengel's time quintet the time quintet which includes a wind in the door 1973 a swiftly tilting planet 78 many waters in 86 an acceptable time in 89 i've read up through tilting planet i read um, I read Wind in the Door. I read Tilting Planet. I started and couldn't finish Many Waters. And then a few years later, I came back to an acceptable time and enjoyed that. But Many Waters, so Lengel, one of the things that we might uh, end up talking about a little bit is she's her books and she like have a strong interest in both science and in Christianity. And um, the latter thing is probably reflected the most uh, overtly in many waters because it's basically a retelling of the Noah's Ark story with some of her characters also in it. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> and as a as a kid, I don't know. It just it didn't it didn't grab me I, for some of the same reasons that the Narnia books don't do a lot for me anymore. I don't know. I just the, the allegory was a little on the nose for me. I think, but I'm I'm saying this is somebody who has not tried to read this book since like. 2002 so yeah don't, like put too much stock in my interpretation of it but yeah and we'll talk about how this book in particular occupies what you might consider like science fantasy if that's a term you want to use and it's certain it, where'd it's you get that from from the internet i think <laughs> wait what with regard to when, this why book, isn't science fiction good enough like what did... well because we'll talk about it the the, <laughs> the lines are fuzzy um and particularly like what if frodo had a phaser well uh, no science I will fantasy say, i know it's fantasy in the way that like c.s lewis is fantasy like you allude you just alluded to that a lewis to that um sh- it, nope, it shares make that a thing i don't a a fantasy line with uh, Narnia in terms of uh, Christianity, but also it's a fantasy novel and an adventure story and things like mm-hmm. that. But mm-hmm. it also is drawing a lot of inspiration from science and science fiction and physicists. Um, so let's quickly introduce ourselves to Miss Lengel and a little bit about how this book came to be. So she was born in New York City in 1918. Uh, she died in 2007, I think. Yeah, she she had um, poor health throughout most of the 2000s, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, died in 2000. So she could she couldn't work much after like 2001 or 2002. Sure, sure. Um, sure she brief, briefly lived in the French Alps with her family. Briefly lived in Florida with her family. Both times was sent to a boarding school and has written books about that. Uh, she went on to graduate from Smith and moved to New York City and was an actress. I did not know this. She appeared on Broadway, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the internet Broadway database only lists her credit for the Cherry Orchard, where she was in the ensemble, and I believe that's the show where she met her husband. 
Yeah, her husband was uh, named Hugh Franklin. I don't really know much about him. I don't no. know if you researched not at all. Him. No, um, but they, yeah, they met in that in that production. They were married in 1946, had their first child in 47, um, and in 52 they moved from New York City to Connecticut, where they like ran a store, which is cool. That's kind yeah, of yeah. Where you could in the days where you just run a store, um, and then uh, Lengel also was trying to write to earn money. Now she. Was not always successful. She nope. uh, briefly, after she turned 40, she received yet another rejection notice and decided she wasn't going to write anymore, which obviously did not <laughs> stick. Um, yes, what I found, this was, I got a lot of my info from, there's a great afterword in the 50th anniversary edition of the book uh, sure. written by her granddaughter, Charlotte Jones Voikless, I'm going to say. Um who said that in the 50s when she was having this crisis about the fact that she couldn't get published, uh, her, I think whoever, the, like, the priest at her church recommended she read a bunch of like German philosophers to help with her existential crisis. And instead... <laughs> Why is it always German philosophers? <laughs> instead, she ended up reading like Einstein and Planck and Heisenberg and like found the the kind of Spinozan spirituality of physics and the and the like relativity and the universe in the the parts of physics that feel like magic that you're just like okay that's right atoms do that i guess i am at least two advanced degrees from being able to understand this which means it's essentially magic yeah yeah i she she got the idea this is from a um like a 2012 new york times like retrospective on her um it says she got the idea for Wrinkle in Time after reading Einstein's writings on relativity. She says, I used a lot of those principles to make a universe that was creative and yet believable. Sure. So okay. that like that's what good science fiction is trying to do. Like a good Star Trek episode is like, okay, I'm gonna make you stretch your understanding of what happens in the world, but like make something just believable enough that you could see it like feasibly existing in three hundred years or whatever it is. Yeah, and this um, book also deliberately doesn't fill in every inch of the coloring book page like it That's leaves a line because when you fill in the corners you get midichlorians <laughs> stop it stop yeah. it. george lucas she is not um and she started good, in on good. this book in 59 when the family took a cross-country trip while uh hugh was getting ready to go back to broadway and the story of its publication she sent it around a bunch it got rejected because people were like kids won't get this weird book yeah, and she said at, at varying times she'd said it was rejected between like 26 and 40 times. Oh, boy. There were different numbers cited in different interviews. But um, she met a publisher at a like a tea party that she she threw for her mother. I heard it was a Christmas it, party. Yeah. I read tea party. Well, but it might have been like Christmas tea, like maybe some spice. Sure. Some nice spiced tea. The, anec anyway, the anecdote <laughs> from this edition is that someone said you should send it to John Farrar from FSG and cuz he liked your other book. She sent it. He sent it to someone to be like, "Hey, what do you think about this book?" Got a note back that said, "Quote: I think this is the worst book I've ever read. It reminds me of The Wizard of Oz." And then <laughs> Farrar pulled the trigger, <laughs> which is kind of great. It and reminds it, me of one of the most memorable works of like Western <laughs> canon. Probably it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Publishers were dodgy on it for a few different reasons. Like one, it was a little weird. 
mm-hmm. obviously, which I think we're going to talk about, to it wasn't clear like if it was a kid's book or if it was a YA thing or an adult book. Like it wasn't just it didn't fit neatly into like established categories. And it also was a science fiction book which had a female protagonist, which people are a little dodgy yep. about yep. in 1961, 1962. Um, it was, did we mention this one was published in 62? So yep. she wrote it in 59, 60, and then spent a couple years getting it published, which on the page doesn't look like, like too much, but plenty of time to get it rejected by two dozen publishers i guess um and it was made into a 2003 television film which i don't think is supposed to be very good uh and folks are a tv movie like how good yeah i don't know it was i don't know disney put money into it um and it is disney's done a lot of things (laughs) craig well that's true. They are also making a, uh, another version of it next year, which folks are pretty excited about. Yeah, it's got uh, Chris Pine, Zach Galifianakis, Mindy Kaling, uh, Storm Reed, Reese Witherspoon, and Oprah Winfrey in it, which, like, okay. Yeah. Isn't it also, is that Ava DuVernay directing it as well? Uh, yes. Yeah. Ava DuVernay is, is directing. Yeah. Folks, folks are, folks are, rightfully pumped about that i think yeah people got excited about the trailer when it came out i think earlier this year so that's due out on uh, march 9th 2018 great so consider this your warm-up lap for yeah, that get pumped. i suppose uh mm-hmm. let's take a quick break and we'll talk about the book okay craig what's the last cool idea that you had the last cool idea that I had was to learn the name of the woman at the bagel place who knows my name and knows my order cold. Okay. I, I mean, that's, listen, that's pretty cool, but I didn't know about it because you haven't made a website about oh, it yet. Oh, snap. Well, maybe I shouldn't <laughs> make a website about learning someone's name. But I could make a website about being nice to customer service people. How could I do that? Uh, I think you could use Squarespace to do that. Uh, You can use them to turn your cool idea, like uh, thanking people who perform basic services for you, into a new website. Uh, You can showcase your work. You can blog or publish content. You can sell products and services of all kinds. Um, there's all kinds of stuff you could do with Squarespace. They have all of these templates that are pre-made. You don't have to like do any coding or any of that boring nerd garbage. Now you said it was like basic human things, but like this is not a basic bagel. It's a pretty good bagel. That's like that's fine. I'm just saying, <laughs> like no matter how good the bagel is, I think you could make a website about it on Squarespace. Okay, that's mm-hmm. good. Um, mm-hmm. They also, I think, they are optimized for mobile right out of the box. They have. You think that, or are you just like off the dome? I'm just like, spitting off the dome. Sure. I'm <laughs> fairly certain that you don't have to patch or upgrade anything. And I heard on the street that they have 24 seven award winning customer support. So I heard that on the street as well. Which People on street? the street love talking about? It. They're talking about it on Squarespace Avenue. <laughs> They also support our show, so you can uh, you know that they're good people. Yeah, and we've used Squarespace like all of these many years that we've run this podcast. We've used Squarespace for the site since the beginning. It's super easy, super like we made our wedding websites on it. Like you do all, all kinds of cool stuff. So um, if you are interested in making a nice looking website that does not actually require a lot of work. 
you should go to squarespay.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code OVERDUE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That is squarespace.com, offer code OVERDUE, save 10%. That's a pretty good amount of percent, I would say. Squarespace.com. <laughs> So, Andrew, before the break, you mentioned that this book has a female protagonist, sci-fi mm-hmm. book. Um, mm-hmm. And let's start there. The book uh, is about Meg Murray, who is a 13-year-old girl who lives in 1950s-ish America. Okay. <laughs> the book is a little loosey-goosey. Uh, it's just fine. It, the kids do own a television. Uh, the internet doesn't exist. And that's about those are the markers that I have. And so, they're like always talking about how much they like Ike. So yeah. <laughs> that's a bit one of the chapters, Ike. Um, I like Ike. So Meg is she's good at math, but she doesn't really like other subjects. She <laughs> uh, gets impatient with things. She can get uh, angry pretty easily. She roughhouses and gets into trouble. Um. She's considered a little emotionally immature because of this. I think it might be because her dad's been missing for like three or four years. Okay. So her dad was some sort of scientist, um, Alexander Murray, and her mom, uh, Catherine, also a scientist. And a couple years ago, he just like went away. And no one really knows where he went. She has a picture of him working at Cape Canaveral, presumably for some space stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has three brothers, uh, two twins named Sandy and Dennis, who are jerks, and her youngest brother, who's five, uh, named Charles Wallace. And he is like, he didn't talk until he was four, but now he speaks in full sentences. <laughs> He, I mean that's good. He, I think five would be is pretty late to not be speaking. Yeah. <laughs> so like everyone thinks he's kind of dumb or something, but he's actually super smart. He doesn't know how to read, but that hasn't stopped him from like learning big words and, sure. and speaking like a you know twelve year old. When you um, when you were reading this this book, I remember from when I was reading it that the kids all seemed a little old for their age. Is that did you get that impression too, or am I just like remembering yes. the kid brain? No. So Charles Wallace talks. I was being glib saying he talks like a twelve year old. He probably talks like a forty year old scientist most of the book. <laughs> uh, Meg probably reads closer to fifteen or sixteen, but she is she still feels young. Um, and the other kid that you meet, we'll meet him a little bit later in the story, Calvin O'Keefe. He is 14, but he's like a couple grades. He's actually a junior because he's kind of smart, um, but he is a big man on campus. He's popular. He plays sports, mm-hmm. uh, but it seems like the sports popular side of Calvin is actually kind of like a mask he wears socially to escape from his like poor family situation like he's Boy, like it's almost like people contain multitudes it is weird huh like it's, can i tell you real quick <laughs> yeah go for it so in in sixth grade my Uh-oh. teacher mr metcalf who's 
signature I could forge impeccably, which <laughs> is something that he did not appreciate when I showed him that I could do it. Oh, no. Um, he would, like, the hour after lunch, like, he would just, like, read us a book. So we did this and Where the Red Fern Grows. I'm trying to remember if there were any others, but... um. So these were these were books I had read already, like they they because I was pretty like well read for a sixth grader, you know. Yeah, sure. And um, there was a line that Charles Wallace I think says where he says like the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I've which never is heard a common, that before. Yeah. Huh. Well, I mean, it's, I, I, it's a common phrase. Yeah, I think. Sure. I mean, if you haven't heard it before, then that's fine. Whatever. <laughs> But because we're in sixth grade and he doesn't want to cuss in front of us, like I, I had my copy of the book out and I was reading along with him as he read aloud and he got to the sentence and I was like, what is he going to do with this one? Is he going to cuss in front of everybody? And what he said, what he did was he paused for like a second, not enough so that anybody else noticed, but so that I noticed because I knew what was going on. And then he said, well, everyone has good intentions. <laughs> Oh, adults. And that story is apropos of nothing, but it's just, it's one of those memories that I have such, like, it's so, like, crystal clear in my memory. Oh. I will remember it, like, long after everything else in my brain has <laughs> gone away, I think. It's funny because this book does do a lot of, like, where do these kids fit in in relation to the adults in their lives? So we know, like, Meg sees her mom as this like beautiful woman um everyone describes her as such she is also a very talented smart scientist who happens to be writing a letter every day to her missing husband mm-hmm. um and meg like feels very uncomfortable with herself and she has braces and she doesn't feel pretty but also it's also it's not just a physical thing but she also is like uh i I got bumped to lower classes in my grade because I can't concentrate and because I get mad all the time. Um, and she's like constantly comparing herself to her mom. And then like later on in the book, it's about kids solving problems where adults can't. Um, mm-hmm. And so there is this, uh, it's, it's funny that you're like, here's a, here's a story of an adult who was like, I will change something for what I think is the sake of kids, even though mm-hmm. it's kind of dumb. <laughs> uh, when kids know like the true way, um, so the book opens with the sentence, "It was a dark and stormy night," which I had not remembered. Which I believe is a, a an homage. Well, right? like <laughs> uh, yeah, I found I looked it up. It's an it's an eighteen thirties novel by a dude named Edward Bulwer Lytton called Paul Clifford. Which starts with, it was a dark and stormy night, the rain fell in torrents, yada, yada, yada. And it's like regarded as this like line of terrible writing. I, I mean, I think it says a lot of that that line has survived and nobody else knows anything <laughs> about where it comes from or what the rest of the yes. story is about. So much so that there's a fiction contest dedicated to writing bad opening lines and it's named after this guy and his great, great, great grandson decided to defend him in a in a debate against the guy who founded that contest like this is <laughs> people are people have a lot of time on their hands they do i also think there should be a contest where you you have to write the best second sentence <laughs> with that as your first sentence okay i buy that 
In fact, well, if, yours if, be? If, if, if I don't know what mine would be, I'm just saying if listeners want to do that this week as some kind of like hashtag social engagement, hashtag brand exercise. Great. I would I would encourage that. Okay, I buy it. Please do mm-hmm. that. Um, so Meg comes downstairs on this dark and stormy night, and she discovers her brother Charles Wallace having a late night snack. Uh, her mom comes in and they're all hanging out and you get a little sense that like Charles Wallace kind of knew that Meg was coming and Meg's like, why does he always know? I, I love my little brother so much, but he creepily knows all my feelings. <laughs> and and then all of a sudden there's like some noises outside and they think it's this like tramp that's in town, but actually it is Mrs. What's it who is described as like, an old lady under a pile of jackets and cheeks <laughs> and hats and stuff. And this is her actual name and not just a thing you're saying because you don't remember her name. No, her actual name is Mrs. What's It. And okay. Charles Wallace is not surprised that she has showed up. Um, and he alludes to her having two other friends that live in a nearby haunted house. And Mrs. What's It doesn't like refuses their offer of like hanging out for some food. And just asks their mom to like help her with her boots. And before she leaves, she says, oh, she says to Meg's mom, oh, and just so you know, there is such a thing as a tesseract. And then she leaves and Meg's mom like freaks out. What are you talking about, Mrs. What's it? Yeah. So the next day you learn that this was like sort of a joke between Meg's mom and her dad, but like she doesn't really elaborate on it. Um, just something to do with science. Tesseract, something, who knows? It's a very sciencey sounding word. It is a really sciencey sounding word. We'll learn what it means in just a second. Um, cool. So the next day she gets called into the principal's office because she said something rude back to a teacher. It's like, why, why do I even need to know about Nicar- Nicaraguan imports or something? Like something a good, like um, eighth grade, ninth grade, like why do I even know need to know about this? Why? Okay, cool. <laughs> and the principal's like a huge jerk. He's like, "Why are you always acting up, Meg? Why doesn't your parent? Why doesn't your family just accept that your dad is either dead or ran away with another woman? Like everyone knows your business. You stop it. Just like get it together. Good job, principal. What's yeah, it? Pre- Mr. Jenkins. He's Mr. a jerk. Jenkins. <laughs> I remember that name now. So the next day, later that day, uh, Meg and Charles Wallace go for a walk to the haunted house to meet Mrs. What's-It. And they run into a guy named Calvin O'Keefe, who I was talking about earlier. And he all of a sudden, it's like you meeting someone in an RPG. Like, he just joins their party instantly. (laughs) Then they do a little dance while a little (laughs) fanfare plays. Yeah, music cue. lift their hands up in the air just really briefly. And he is, like, vibing with Charles Wallace instantly. And as I said, like, Charles Wallace is sort of like a telepath empath. And uh, Calvin alludes to the fact that he had, like, a compulsion to come meet them. So there's a little bit of, like, hmm, maybe Calvin has some of these superpowers, too. We don't know. Uh, we learn that he comes from his bad family. He's, like, one of 11. His mom beats some of his brothers and sisters. He's, like, excited to get Neat. out. Yeah, he's excited to get into a different situation. Uh, they end up at the haunted house where Mrs. What's It is there. They also meet Mrs. Who, who is like described as a little plump woman who's Wait, like Mrs. also, who? yeah, exactly. Uh, who's on first? It's Mrs. Third who. base. <laughs> and she's wearing a bunch of clothes and like dressed in sheets that they stole. Well, and yeah, stuff. I should hope so. And um, 
they they don't really say much at this juncture. You learn that Mrs. Who can only really speak in quotations um, of all sorts of languages, and then she'll translate them immediately afterwards. But it's a lot of like axioms from different languages and famous quotations. Do you have any examples or not? Uh, let me get one for you one second. Uh, when they get talking to his dad, actually. So she says to uh, Charles that it's time. It's getting near time, Charlesy. It's getting near time. Ab honesto virum bonum nihil deterit. Seneca, nothing deters a good man from doing what is honorable. And then that is apparently the cue that you're going to go save your dad. <laughs> like That's the news <laughs> that you have to go save your dad. Later down the page, justicie soror fides Latin again. Of course, faith is the sister of justice. Trust in us, now shoe. And then they shove them out the, out the door. Okay, cool. Uh, later in the book, you learn that she has trouble, like, verbalizing in her own words so she speaks through quotation mm-hmm. um, do we like what a, how are we before supernatural stuff starts happening <laughs> remind me how we're supposed to take the the like departure of their of their dad is the mr jenkins interpretation of events like what people believe in their heart of hearts that he just like stepped out to another dimension for a pack of cigarettes and never came back <laughs> It's really unclear that Meg's mom knows in her heart of hearts that he's going to come back, but really doesn't know where he went. He was off working for the government. I don't it's not clear where they're living, uh, though he is. It's alluded to that he worked at the Institute for Higher Learning in Princeton, um, which is also affiliated with like some of the work that happened out in Los Alamos for the A-bomb. So like he was working on official government science projects and it's very likely that he would have been away from home and then just they, maybe they don't know where he went. Um, it's all very like secret government, hush, hush, maybe. Okay. That's Difficult. the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. The The town scuttlebutt is that he ran away with a lady or he's dead. Um <laughs> one of those. One of those. Those are the two options. Um, so after they meet these two bizarre ladies in the haunted house, um, they just go back home with Calvin and have dinner, I guess. Uh, and one of the things I will always remember about this book is the scene they come home and Mrs. Murray is like cooking stew on a Bunsen burner. And she's like, don't <laughs> don't tell Sandy and Dennis that I, that I'm doing this on the on Denny and Sandus or whatever their names are. Um, I think it's Sandy and Denny's. Yeah, it might be Dennis. <laughs> it's spelled Denny's. Uh, don't tell them that I'm cooking stew on the Bunsen burner because they think the chemicals are going to get in there. That's just an image that's like that's, in my brain forever. Right. Yeah. That's. I mean, that's not how fire works. <laughs> no. but. Uh, and you get to know Calvin a bit more. Like I said, he's kind of just joined their party. He's part of their family. He says to Meg, um, she doesn't know how lucky she is to be loved. Like for all of her consternation about herself and how the family fits into the community, um, her family does love her, particularly her mom and Charles Wallace. And Calvin's like, yo, that's really unique. My family stinks. Like you gotta, you gotta hold on to that. And, they're hanging out, and all of a sudden, Charles Wallace is like, hey, we got to go outside for a second. We got to go hang out in the vegetable garden. And he takes Calvin and Meg out there, and he's like, tonight's the night. We got to go. We got to go save Dad. Okay. 
and Mrs. Whatsit shows up, followed by Mrs. Who, and then there's like a shimmering light that suggests a pair of glasses called Mrs. Witch. And Mrs. Witch... Spell spell witch for me, please. W-H-I-C-H. Okay, so we're not we're out of Spooktober now. It's not like a it's not a spooky situation. No, it's they are alluded to as sort of being like witches. At one point, they even have a quote from Macbeth to like reference them being come like coming together. Mm-hmm. But it is not. They are not spooky witches. Um, Mrs. Witch has trouble staying in a physical form, so usually you. Same. <laughs> So usually you just see her as some like light uh, glistening, and she speaks in like long, long drawn out words that like the book just has like extra co- like vowels and consonants in it. Um, so just like that's supposed to represent like the effort on her part to, to speak. Yes, or, I f- okay. find it very tiring and we have much to, to do. Like okay. it's lots of extra letters just to show mm-hmm. that it's hard for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, with very minimal explanation, all of a sudden, all the kids are whisked off of the planet Earth and into a dark void of nothing. <laughs> Um, okay. that uh, at one point Meg describes as uh, a deaf, you know, contrasting it with a deaf person can feel vibrations. Here there was nothing to feel. Like it's just actual nothingness, which they later learn that they have like not only traveled through space, they have traveled through what is referred to as the black thing, all capital first letters, mm-hmm. which is evil personified um, that is afflicting various parts of the universe. Uh, these these space ladies have taken Calvin, Charles Wallace, the Superboy, and our protagonist Meg to the planet Uriel, which is super pretty and has like space centaurs on it, um, <laughs> who just like roam around and are like full of peace, love, and joy. And Mrs. What's it like? They're sort of describing the plan, which is to save their dad, who traveled through space somehow at what point like at what point do we get a sense of of something larger going on like is it is it always presented as just like okay time to save your dad or is it like uh like do they do they present it as a thing where oh your dad is like has been captured by something or waylaid by something or this is going to be like a larger quest than we're letting on you know what i mean it's i was surprised and this we'll jump ahead to the end of the book just to reference that I was surprised at how contained these kids' story is. So in the next two scenes, the one I'm just started describing and the next one in the book, it is presented as this like cosmic issue that there is a like um just a, a like a, a darkness, a, an evilness um that is afflicting the universe. That is like, for lack of a better word, it it is power being exerted on things. Um, we'll talk about the analogies of what power is in this book later. But they, Mrs. What's it turns into a space centaur and like flies them up on top of a mountain. Okay, and great. on the on the way, <laughs> on the way, they hear other space centaurs like singing a beautiful song, and it actually is Psalm one forty nine, like. Zing it, dim Aaron, like sing to the Lord a new song. So all the animals in space 
also believe in God. It like that is the C.S. Lewisness of this universe. Right. I mean, what is God but the ultimate space animal? <laughs> That's true. Um, and they present they they bring these kids to the top of a mountain and they say, "Hey, look at that planet." and reveal to them that it is like beset by this evilness. Um, and they say like, this is what we're fighting against. Your father is on the other side of one of these clouds. We're going to have to go through one to go save him. And then they take them to another planet where they, uh, in the Orion's belt where they meet this woman called the medium who has a crystal ball, who tells them about who like shows them a picture of earth where there is a similar cloud. It's not as strong but it's not great. And the kids are kind of freaking out that their planet's going to get eaten by evilness. Mm-hmm. And uh, they say that, okay, there are people that are fighting against it. Now, here's the list of people who have fought against the evilness around the planet Earth, Andrew. Okay. Jesus. Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> <laughs> He's the first one. Uh, wait, I, I think, wait, what? Wait. So, like, the kids are, like, stressed out that, like, what are we supposed to do about this darkness that's encircling the planet? Uh, and the and the ladies, the space ladies, are like, hey, don't worry. People have been fighting this for the whole time. Who do you think has been fighting this? But, like, did they succeed? Like, well, the, are the ladies like, like, okay, okay, there's this guy named Jesus. Like, he was, he was fine. It's a longer he was, list. He was, like, okay, so Jesus was pretty good. He couldn't quite do it, but I think you kids are at least as good as Jesus. <laughs> it's more Christ. it's more like a hope thing. Like we all have to join the fight. Okay. So Jesus tried and like did okay. Yeah. Here's some Prob- o- like you you kids can at least do as good as Jesus. <laughs> or Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo or Shakespeare or Bach or Louis Pasteur and Madame Curie. <laughs> what's or- Louis Pasteur <laughs> Louis Pasteur is just gonna try and boil the evil or what's he gonna Albert do? Albert <laughs> Einstein, Schweitzer, Gandhi, Buddha, Beethoven, Rembrandt, Saint Francis, Euclid, and Copernicus. So anybody who had good ideas, I guess. Any, yeah, I guess. Who made art? <laughs> art combats the evil, and there so... Was a, there was an interesting, and, and, and we didn't... I should have talked about this when we were talking about uh, Langle, but um, I found her take on Christianity to be pretty interesting, and I think, sure. I guess this goes to... Um, this 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 fits in with that list of, of people, I think. Um, she had a, she had, so like we said, she liked science and Christianity and she believed in this concept of like universal salvation. So like many forms of Christianity, including the one I came up with was like, you gotta, like, you've gotta be saved. You've gotta have this moment where you like profess your faith. And then after that you are saved. Sure. And you're going to heaven. Um, she was an Episcopalian, and she believed in that that um, this is this is from her. All will be redeemed in God's fullness of time. All, not just the small portion of the population who have been given to the given the grace to know and accept Christ. Um, and so, like as a as a result, she straddles this weird line where Christian bookstores would refuse to carry her book sometimes. And they would be banned from Christian schools and libraries, but also secular critics would say that her work was like too religious. Yeah, it's, it's and so a- that's like that's how you. I think that's how you reconcile her. Her 
faith with this list of people that includes all kinds of like secular artists and thinkers as well as like Gandhi, Gandhi and Buddha and and like different figureheads from different religions. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I don't know like if you write if you make this book 40 years later who else is on that list? Like maybe MLK is on that list. Um I don't know, that's a whole exercise that you could go down. But mm. um I, f- I thought that was interesting, and it was obviously, like, it's a little comical that the first one that they list is Jesus, but okay, um, that's just, it's just sure. It's setting a certain That's tone, a really high bar, right? <laughs> um, but so, this is also, supposed to... Yeah, who is who is on that, like, before <laughs> Jesus? Is it, like, nobody, bef- like, Augustus or any of those people, like, no. they were fine, but they weren't, like, fighting evil. Yeah, that's true. And then, like, Rembrandt's, like, at the end of the list, like I just made this big painting. I guess here you go. <laughs> here, look at it. Look at evil. it. Evil. Look at it in despair. I'm night watching you. This evil. Jesus has been dead for years. I'm the best you got. <laughs> so uh, the other thing that these ladies explain is how they're able to travel through space time, and that's where Tesseracts oh, come in. <laughs> okay, sure. And I I remember this distinctly. Um, I just remember this like escalation of what the dimensions are. It's laid out very quickly in this book, but they describe tesseracts as you take like I think in the book one of the one of the women takes their like skirt and says like stretches it out in a straight line and it's like imagine a bug walking from one end to the uh, other. Oh yeah, because isn't this illustrated? It is. It's illustrated. Okay. I think the yeah, illustrations I this. were added in like the seventies or something, um, and it goes from point A to point B. Um, and then in the next picture, you fold the fabric and the bug can just walk from like one thumb to the next thumb. Um, and it's like, that's how we move through space and time. And then the the five dimensions, she describes it as a fifth dimensional travel. First dimension being a line. Second is a square. Third is a cube. Fourth is, the as Meg says, the square of a square. It has something to do with Einstein. It's probably time. <laughs> and they say that the fifth is a tesseract which is when you travel through space without taking the long way around that involves time um i i think in actual math like tesseract is usually used as a term for a fourth dimensional object um a cube of a cube but it's cool like you can it's at that point humanity's just like shrugging at what it is yeah, so like, just know, go for whatever. it go for it maddie Lengel. you you do you <laughs> um so to go save their father they have to go through the black thing they have to tesseract again to a world called camazots where uh their dad is there's a humorous like page and a half where they have like accidentally gone through a two-dimensional planet and the kids almost die <laughs> whoops um <laughs> which is kind of neat. And they end up it's on this like there's a there's a ready player one version of this oh, where really? they like have to get their way through the No, 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 I'm just saying. Oh, like, sure, sure, sure. If this were written by a modern author, they'd like make a bunch of Super Mario jokes or something. Yes. Okay, I buy that. Mhm. Um and they end up on this planet called Camazots and they end up in this central city of Camazots which one of the designated the denizens describes as the quote most oriented city on the planet. Uh, everyone behaves in like a clock-like fashion. They walk down the street and there's all these kids bouncing a ball rhythmically the same way. They all go in the house at the same time. There's like one kid who does it wrong and he gets like 
shoved into his house by his embarrassed mom. And the the three of them are walking around. They've been sent by the space ladies um, th- that they know that their dad is there. They have to go save him. Mm-hmm. Charles has been told not to be too proud. Meg has been told to embrace her faults. And, like, Calvin has been told to, like, I think it's, like, something like be, you know, be open and communicative. Like, lean into that that person that you are or something. Um. They eventually end up at Central Intelligence where they meet a man with red eyes who speaks without opening his mouth. He just sits there in this big room. I envision it this time reading through it as like a big like server farm. Um, I don't think that's what it is, like an Amazon server farm. I don't think it's just Jeff Bezos just sitting in a chair growling at these kids, but it could be. Uh-huh. There's um, a... On the paperback edition that I had as a kid, there was the version with like the bright pinky purple mm-hmm, sort mm-hmm. of outline, and then there was the there was all the kids, and then the centaur, and then this like head floating with the red eyes, and the dude I don't know if he was modeled after um, after Peter Cushing, <laughs> but he does very much have like a Grand Moff Tarkin okay. thing going on. Yeah, sure. Like, do you I, hold on? Let me let me send you a, a picture while you keep talking. OK. Uh, <laughs> and the three kids are talking to this guy who is able to speak directly into their minds. And they are, of course, concerned that this society a seems bizarre mm-hmm. that everyone is moving in lockstep. Oh, yes, that is definitely Peter Cushing. It's got oh, a very boy. Peter Cushing vibe oh, going boy. on. <laughs> um, so they are moving in. You know, they're concerned about the society, but also they really want their dad back. And Charles Wallace is, like, trying to crack this thing's mind. He clearly can tell that this is, like, a body projecting another consciousness. Um, And this man is arguing that Kamazots is, like, a better way of living because you don't need to think for yourself. The quote I pulled was, uh, for you... As well for the rest of all the happy, useful people on this planet, I, in my own strength, am willing to assume all the pain, all the responsibility, all the burdens of thought and decision. And that's the pitch that this, like, red-eyed Grand Moff Tarkin dude is making to these kids. Honestly, like, it sounds like a pretty good <laughs> Well, so here's the thing, Andrew. You can read Kamazots um, as, like, an anti- Soviet, like, but given when it was written, right, in the 60s, uh, late 50s into 60s, you can read it as this anti-communist, anti-Soviet screed. Um, in the afterword, the granddaughter speaks more to it being as uh, an anti-dictatorship run of, like, don't subject yourself to the like the whims and ruling of like one central figure, like there should sure. be room for difference and, and difference of opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it, all, it probably also plays into like the independence of children versus parents telling them what to do, which like Meg is 13, which is where that age where you start to figure that out. Um, so anyway, Charles Wallace, who's five, but talks like a scientist um, <laughs> is of course trying to defeat this man. And he gets goaded into, like linking brains with him um a couple scenes happen before that where they like brought bring out a bunch of matrix food 
and like Charles has to fight. Matrix food. Can you explain to me? Yeah. So like Charles knows that this is all like an illusion, but they bring out some like food that uh, Calvin and Meg taste as turkey dinner and uh, Charles tastes sand. Like he knows that it's garbage. It's not unlike. It's more like I'm trying to think of a good analogy. It's not like hook food, which is. It's invisible until you imagine it's food. It's not unlike um, Turkish delight in a way, in that it can sure in a that it can be what you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is that like Charles Wallace, because he has telepathic powers, can like see around it or or can resist the the man's influence into his brain to make it taste like turkey dinner. Um, but anyway he gets goaded into just going for it and like i'm gonna dive in your brain and, and see what happens and he gets hypnotized and becomes part of what is revealed to be a thing called it which you discover a, a section or two later is just a giant brain that's controlling this building this whole planet excuse me mm-hmm. um they do rec- rescue their dad they do rescue mr murray um, but they, he has to tesser them, which be, has now become a verb. <laughs> um, <laughs> he has to tesser them off the planet before they succumb to it, leaving Charles Wallace behind. Um, and the close of the book is they end up on this planet called Ixthel with these, with these other aliens that I completely forgot were in the book. These like, they don't, they don't see, um, they're furry and they have tentacles, um and they take care of Meg after she has like traveled through the black thing again and, and is like frozen solid. Um and she's all pissed because they left Charles Wallace behind. The space ladies show back up and they're like, Meg, you have to go save him because you have the strongest connection to him. And her anger like turns into understanding and grace with the situation. And they tesser her back there. And they're like, yo, you have the one thing that it does not have, which she discovers is love, Andrew. It's just love. It's always love, though. Doesn't it? Isn't it always love? Yeah. This probably wasn't a big cliche like back in the day. <laughs> I but. don't think it was. Um, there, The two things I want to allude to is like, uh, or I want that I want to tackle is when they when the space ladies come back on the planet of Excel, there's this dramatic chapter break where you just see the words we are here which is mrs witch just like busting in the door which is sure cool. yeah and i guess that's that's where her exaggerated style of speaking like is, really pays uh, off yeah, yeah right um and then the actual confrontation where she has to save charles wallace is pretty cool because at this point um she gets she gets sent back into the chamber with it, and it has this like pulsing heartbeat that you can feel that you actually end up like living along to, which is part of its power. And Charles Wallace is there, and Charles Wallace is actually trying to turn Meg's mind on what the space ladies are up to, um, and saying like, "Oh no, they're they actually hate you. They wanted you to come here and be in danger." And one of the last things that Mrs. Whatsit said to Meg before they sent her was that she loves her. And Meg realizes in that moment that Charles Wallace is lying or it is lying through him mm-hmm. and that she can love him. And that is what will bring him back, which she does. And in the instant she does that, 
one of the space ladies like just runs through, gets them out of there, and gets everyone back to Earth. So we don't like we know we don't save Camazots. We don't defeat the evilness. We just saved a dude who was working for the government and accidentally teleported himself to Camazots when he was trying to get to Mars. <laughs> True story. And we taught these kids a lesson about love and being an individual, which is cool. But it is like pretty self-contained. It's not sure. a like save the universe narrative. Well, and I like. I think it, I think if you said, okay, here is this here is this evil being that like Beethoven and Jesus have fought, <laughs> but then you random kids are gonna like fight sure. it and defeat it forever. Like it sounds like it's it's an idea, and I think we are running up against some of this kind of stuff in our, in our current like political landscape. I think it's a, um, it is an evil that can be deflected or like tamped down, but does need to be fought over and over again. And needs to be fought on all fronts. Right. Right. Which is, I think how, how the, like the everyday mundane sort of evil actually works. Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, and, and so the way that that's presented in this book is like on Camazot's, Part of that evil is our willingness to trade agency for security. Um, sure. Mm-hmm. Our our desire, you know, even when you were kind of like half joking for like, oh man, it would be great if someone else could just like deal with all this crap for me. Like that in this book is part of the slippery slope. Did you think I was joking? Like- <laughs> well, fair enough. <laughs> I think uh, what the, what this is telling us is that Task Rabbit is like the fourth <laughs> horseman of the apocalypse, <laughs> and Amazon Turk or whatever it is. I mean, Camazot. You can't spell Camazots without most of the letters in Amazon. Amazon. Oh no! <laughs> oh boy. Um, there, there's also like a the the last thing that Mrs. Who gives her before she goes back and saves Charles Wallace is a quote from the Bible about the foolish being put there to confound the wise and the meek being there to like confront the strong or something like that. Sure. So again, it is really about inverting or challenging power structures. Um, there's something in the afterward that I will, that I had, you know, I had not read that when I was a kid and I will probably, I will not forget it in the, in the short term. Hopefully I remember it for the long term. Um, the granddaughter talks about her grandmother, Madeline Lengel, not liking the phrase like the power of love mm-hmm. um, because love in- inherent to love is vulnerability. So like when you imply power there, you are you are implying coercion. Right. And making someone do something, which at the yeah, end, I can, I can see that, which at um, the end of the day, this book is like the the logical end of making people do things is uh is where camazots lies right um but like radically loving someone is to just be completely vulnerable and open to them um so much so that you would risk your life to to save them or or whatever that is um there are obviously like holes in that if you treat it dogmatically um but it's interesting. I, I had not considered the 
the uh, that version that read on like the way love is handled in this yeah book. yeah because it, it has to do with like the people saying like the 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 strength of love or like the the effect of love yes which i, I don't know and, and it does it contrasts with pursuing power for its for its own sake i guess like mm-hmm. it has a very it has a very specific view of the way power works like it's a it's a very um it's a uh it's a pessimistic view on what power is yeah which true I, I, I guess is is merited i think a lot of the time but yeah for sure <laughs> but um there's something that uh her dad says one of the scenes again it's it's been interesting to read this book and just be like, oh, I definitely remember this, or oh, I wow, I don't remember those weird aliens that save her. Um, but the chapter that opens, it's called Absolute Zero. It's the one where she's frozen after leaving Kamazots the first time, and she's Meg is frozen because she's always really bad at going through the black thing, and she's listening to Calvin and her dad. Uh, make conversation while they try to warm her up and and get her healthy again, which is a cool scene device in retrospect. Because um, well, how, how long has their dad been gone? Like, was Charles Wallace even a? He was a one year old baby when. Yeah, her dad like, do they left. even have an established relationship? No, and that's why they end up needing to send Meg. Of the yeah. three of them, Meg is the only one who has a close relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the twins just like don't matter. Yeah, apparently the twins are in like book four or something. Yeah, no, that that's many waters as they are the ones who get sent back <laughs> to, to Noah the, to Noah times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and in book two, I think they go inside Charles's mitochondria. And in book three, Charles travels through time, like Y'all, living book, like book in different two people. And, and three gets super strange. Yeah, um, I, rem- I remember thinking when I read an acceptable time, like, oh, this is because acceptable time, like there are time travel elements. It's actually, um, it's Meg and Calvin's daughter. Yeah, who is in her Peggy? Like, I mid- think. Yeah, yeah, who's in her like late teens. And she's she's like dating somebody who has a really weak heart, like like he has health problems. It's not like a love thing. It's not oh, a metaphor. sure. Like his, okay. his heart sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and they like go back in time and meet some like I think it's Native Americans who yeah, live there, yeah. and they do some like heart transplant thing. It's it's a Ooh. it's still a strange book, but it doesn't get like as. Like you're not in the in the cell like talking to mitochondria. Like yeah. I don't. I, it's not as like metaphysical and weird as wind in the door. Uh, wind in is, the door whoa, and boy. tilting planet. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but the thing I I want to make sure that I talked about was there's a quote from Meg's dad while this frozen scene is happening, where he's explaining to Calvin like how he got into this mess, and he said he was working for the government. And they learned Typical. they learned about tessering and t- and tesseract travel. They sent one guy. I think his name was Hank. And he <laughs> never sent Hank. Hank's never gonna do a good job. They waited. Come a, on. They waited a year, and Hank never came back. Hank. So Doctor Murray went, and he was trying to get to Mars, and ended up on Camazots. And so they imprisoned him because he was resisting it. And he was very close to giving up. 
um, when they got there. But he and we says just, we don't know what happened to Hank. We have no idea what happened to Hank. And he's talking about tessering, and he says, <laughs> "quote We're we're children playing with dynamite." And I saw that line, and then reading a little bit more about the book, I was like, "Wow, yeah, that's a thing that someone in the nuclear age would say." Like all of these scientists who were during the World War during the World War II in particular, were like contributing to the public good and like using this, and then it leads to the bomb, but then you're also seeing it being used for an energy revolution. Yeah, then... like like to, to say we are children playing with dynamite is to say like our ability to blow things up has outstripped our ability to like understand the full like consequences of what we have done. Yeah, let alone how the universe <laughs> works, but the consequences of what we're doing. Um, which is just like, ooh. and I contrast that with the very personal story of Meg um, growing and like the turning point at the at the end of the book that I alluded to is when she realizes that she she's not mad at her dad anymore for them leaving Charles Wallace there. She is just now determined to go get him because she realizes that sometimes there are things that parents can't do. Uh, and it's just like the simple fact, and sh- and she's like, "All right, send me. That's great. Let's do it." Well, it's a, it's a version of that. I mean, we everybody has, I think, that moment where they realize, "Hey," and and some and most of the time it happens as an adult. Like, "Hey, parents are just people. Yep, and they don't have all the answers. Nope. And and if you're waiting as a as a kid as a teenager to like hit that moment where you know everything like you think your parents did like surprise they didn't and you won't yeah and it can be a lot of different things like i was struck seeing the scenes where you're just looking at meg's mom like despondent and just choosing to carry on rather than giving up on her husband who disappeared into the another corner of the universe and she doesn't even know. And you're like, how do you watching a watching one of your parents like deal with loss or grief or something is a, is one of those gut check moments um, where you're like, Oh no, they don't have the answers. They're not going to help me. They need help with their own stuff. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, it's a pretty uh, that gets to like none of the events in this book easily map to an allegory, which we've talked to a couple of, uh, talked about a couple of times. Like what's fascinating about the faith in this book is that it's kind of presented as fact and then not really dwelled on. The the space ladies are used to be stars and they died giving up their star life to fight the evil. Um, <laughs> I can't explain it more than that. That's Can you just put down that marijuana <laughs> cigarette and tell me that again. Like, At, like sometime after Mrs. What's it became a space centaur and they traveled to meet the happy medium lady in the Orion's belt. Um, <laughs> she explains that she's the youngest of the three space ladies and then she's like two billion years old and she used to be a star but she like died fighting the darkness like trying okay. to shine her light bright enough to fight it it's not like a like a broadway sense of, no I used to no, be no. A star. i used to i used to be a star i used to mean something to the people i was on broadway town in a bit role in the cherry orchard and i met a husband <laughs> um but 
there's and then there's like apparently the the aliens that have the tentacles and fur also like they use he with a capital h in the way that they like refer to god but again it's not necessarily not it's not explicitly christian in any way it's just like there's a creator and if you aren't the if you aren't it or or some other nefarious creature like you are part of the good group and that's just it mm-hmm. um and then similarly like there's space and there's physics but she's not trying to flesh out a whole alternate universe to explore how systems work um it's not that type of science fiction and it's not that type of fantasy world building either and Kamazots is not a great one-to-one analogy for any sort of modern society. It's really just, it's it's equal parts. What if we all just surrendered to a, a central power? And what if conformity, like, were the only thing that we cared about? Yeah. Um, so I think that's why it endures and it's why it doesn't feel we've read a couple of these like mid to late 20th century uh, YA books or like upper level children's leader readers that don't really feel like anything I've read since. And maybe these maybe books like this exist now and i would love to hear from some of our listeners like what they think some of these books are now what do you mean like like things written by contemporary authors that that grapple with some of the same like non-conformity stuff as wrinkle in time well but also don't conform to traditional genre stuff like sure. maybe that's just not possible anymore because of the way that books get marketed and published yeah um, like i really i i can't i really can't say like i when, when i think about prominent authors in the space now i think about like i think about like the hunger Games stuff or i think about like john green like i I think a lot of a lot of fiction written for this age or i I think of like rainbow roll or something like i think a lot of the, the fiction is dealing more with grappling with like the self and how you like think about yourself and how you like navigate that transition between childhood and adulthood and i think wrinkle in time is doing some of that but it also is 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 moving beyond that in a way like like i don't i don't want to suggest that modern day ya is is like super narcissistic compared to what no no but but, but like do you know what i mean i think i think it has more to do with it's it's grappling more with like individuality than it is with like these these universal ideas more more individuality than universality and like trying to get to universality by way of individuality wait now you put down the jazz cigarette i'm sorry about <laughs> my jazz cigarette hold on i i think it's interesting <laughs> <laughs> to think about this book alongside things like the outsiders and the giver and like some of those books from you know 60s through mid to late 80s that we've read that are like at the outset of when this became a market for publishers, like what mm-hmm. if we what if we had a book that was like a little on a couple of different edges, and we sent it right to the teenagers and folks who were interested in that, right um, to the teenagers, and then like Harry Potter took over some of that as well as the Harry Potter series got on. Um, so yeah, it's just it was, it was interesting to see. 
as an adult really what this book was and what it like was totally cool not being at the same time um and it, it, in the same way that it's like as we alluded to when we read lewis like lewis is just kind of like doing his own thing and yes it's for kids but it's not it's not childlike fiction in the way that we that we assume today mm-hmm. um just because it is about and centered on on kid voices um so yeah that probably wraps up we're probably at time for this guy no i reckon we are yeah i reckon we're, we we're in past time a little bit yeah. actually I haven't haven't been paying super close attention because i've been having fun revisiting this book yeah um so yeah if you it's like this is not a long read you should go re- reread this if you have any inclination um, it may take you longer to listen to our show about it than <laughs> to read through this read book. Um, so if you have other thoughts that we didn't get to, and I'm speaking to you, the listener, right now, you should hit us up at overduepod at gmail.com, or you can use our social media feeds, particularly at twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. A lot of folks have reached out to us in the last week, specifically about this month's schedule. So I want to thank April, Colleen, Thais, Sarah, Philip, Mary. This is going to take a minute. <laughs> Juliana, Cindy, Amanda, Gloria, Colleen, Julian, Elise, Albi, Michael, Kara, Cheyenne, Mary, Kate, Kelsey, Amy, Jennifer, Emily, Katie, Brendan, Cameron, Madeline, Ellie, Wendy, Rebecca, Rachel, Lawrence, Sean, Graham, Grace, R.A., Lauren, M.J., Lee, oh, Becky, God, and many, high. many more that I couldn't squeeze onto this list. Um, thanks to everybody that helps us get through the week and, and like gives us a little shot of dopamine and lets us know what you're thinking about what we're doing. Andrew, folks who want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com. That's a place on the internet. You may have heard of it, the internet, uh, where you can find out more about the show. We've got links to iTunes, Google Play, um, RSS, all places you can subscribe to the show. Um, If you want to donate to us, give us money to do this thing that we do, we actually added a new goal tier to our uh, Patreon project this past week. That's Patreon.com slash OverduePod. We want to do a, uh, I don't think we legally could call it a choose-your-own-adventure book, so like we aren't calling it that. But we want to do a book in which you can choose your own thing. Yep. We want to like write it ourselves with our warped, terrible minds. And <laughs> if, you, uh, if you donate to us via Patreon, that's again, patreon.com slash overduepod, you get, if we get up to $750 a month, we are going to start working on that in earnest and uh, hopefully like trying to publish something like next year. Something that you like, can have wanna... and read to your children. Yeah, your children and your children's children. I don't want to like I don't want to make too many promises, but it's a, it's a thing we've wanted to do for a while. Um, and, and we're excited to get started. So again, patreon.com slash overdue pod. And uh, yeah, we we wanna we wanna write a book. We wanna give back. Like we've read so many books now. I think we're kind of experts on books. Totally true. And so now that we're so smart at them, we we want to take a crack at doing one. I think. Speaking of being smart at books, Andrew, what are you reading next week? Um, I'm reading The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This is a book I read sophomore year of high school, and I hated it. <laughs> Because I didn't, I think it's because I didn't get it. So we're going to talk about it and the jazz age and all kinds of stuff on, on next week's show. Sounds good. Thanks for traveling through time with me this week.
Thanks for traveling through time with me. We're going to travel through time a lot. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a fun November because we are gearing up to. Um, until next Monday, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.